Father, we do come to give you thanks tonight for the Word of God, a sure foundation, and we're coming to ask you to give us grace to understand it, to understand what it means to have it in our hands. We thank you for that great privilege, Father. We're the most privileged people of the entire church age to have your word written, published, to have tools available to understand it, to hear your voice. So we're coming and asking you to give us in our own hearts a deep appreciation for that and understanding where it fits and how you're calling us to live. So we come and trust you for that, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the top of the page, it says, The the life I now live, and we're into Galatians 2.20. We started there. Uh, We're thinking about the life of faith. I promise you we're getting there. I promise you. But we have been all over the place in a sense, but it's directed because there are certain things that we have to get clear before we can really grasp the life of faith. We came to two conclusions that I want to... uh, underline tonight. The first conclusion is this. Faith is not creative. This is way back. Faith is not creative. Our own day, you say, if I just have enough faith, we can make anything happen, and that's not so in a biblical sense, right? has nothing to do with the biblical record, because according to the biblical record, faith is a confidence in something that God has said. You have to have a prerequisite for your faith. You have to have something you've got confidence in, Faith doesn't, isn't of any value by itself. It has to latch itself to something valuable. And that valuable thing is the Word of God. Second point, all right, that I want to underline tonight. Paul, in that statement in Galatians 2.20, goes on to say this, that I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We did touch on this when we were um, looking at that passage at the very beginning, but I want to remind you of it. That's an incredible statement because he didn't just say that God loved the world, the Lord loved the world, and he gave himself for the, for the whole world, and that, that I now can trust him. He says, I am trusting the one who loved me particularly and died for me particularly. And that particular nature in that verse is extremely important to the whole concept of faith. Sometimes we have this kind of sense that we're, we're somewhere remote from God. I don't, I don't know, again, I can remember those days before I was a Christian, while I was still in the nominal Christian world, but in my own life was not, I didn't really understand it at all. Hadn't even read through the word that God gave to us. I just, I was a long way from it. And you sit there and you wonder, does God even know or care about who I am? Paul's talking about this situation because there's no indication from the Word of God that prior to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus that God or that Paul had ever had an interaction with Jesus. That there was never a time when the two of them met. Again, it's possible because of the timing that they could have happened, but there, it, it just doesn't seem that it did. And yet he said that Jesus loved me. And gave himself for me. It's a profound truth in the word of God that if you know God tonight, he has loved you since before there was a foundation to this earth. He had you in mind. 
And while you were growing up and living apart from him, where I was, again, some of you grew up in, in Christian homes, and you don't remember this time. But when I was living out there, thinking about whether or not there was a God, I lived and moved and had my being in that God. That he knew everything about me. He knew everything about you too. It's not unique to me. It's not unique to Paul. It's about us all. That's the God that we serve. The part that David could say, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. You know my thoughts. And you know them way before I get to them. From a far off doesn't mean that he's a far off. It means that the thoughts are far off. Before I ever get to my conclusion today, the Lord already knows where I'm going to finish. He knows why I'm going to say what I say. He knows where I'm going to divert from what I had planned to say. He knows all about that. And I don't know that yet. Because it's still future to me, but it's all known to Him. You see, this concept that God is somewhere out there away from us is completely foreign to the Word of God. And sin hasn't changed any of that. Because sometimes we think about the fact, well, that's true for people who are walking with God. But what about those of us who, again, when you're in sin... All right, you're not following him. You're like me when I came to Furman University. I've given the testimony a thousand times, but anyway, still, it's what happened. I came to Furman University, and one of the reasons I came to Furman University was to get away from church. Dear Dan Johnson had other, my, other things in mind, but it just that was my plan. Not to forsake the whole concept of of faith, but to get out of the church life that I had been in for all my life. Yet there's one who loved me, gave himself for me, who came and got me. And I want to think about that tonight because last week we were at a kind of a depressing place when we finished, right? You get to the spot where Eve has been tempted and she has, she has life in, in God. She has the relationship with the eternal God as her privilege and she is tempted by the serpent and told that life is to be had by grabbing something from this earth. That would fill her out to the fullness. She would then be enriched and enriched in a way that was, is way beyond anything she'd ever experienced. She bought that lie. And because she bought that lie and because Adam didn't fight with her about it, they both ate the fruit and they both died. They both died. Because what God says is true. It's, it's the way it, it works out, and it, it, it occurred there. But in the story, there is a, a next great point. Because it would have been easy for God just to desert the whole thing, right? They're dead. They're separated from me. I'll, <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. But then right after that takes place, and it's a well-known passage, God comes into that garden it's in the cool of the evening. Apparently, he had waited a while before he manifested himself there, and he comes to the cool of that garden, and here's what he has to say. Adam, where are you? He hasn't rejected him completely. He has died. Adam is now out of relationship. That's true, but God is not finished with the program. This is not the last chapter. It's the beginning of the Bible. It's not the last chapter of the Bible. And God has a plan in mind. We could say that he said, I'm, I'm going I'm to make this right. But in a sense, 
It's not quite that. That would in- indicate that God was a responding element, that here is the, a situation, now I will spawn here and figure out what it, he knew way before this took place. We talked about that last week. When the triune God said together, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, that Godhead knew exactly what it would cost to finish this program. And he was determined to do it. He was determined to do it. And that gives us great hope because the eternal God is seeking. How does he seek? All right, this one thing. How does God seek? How is it that he seeks us tonight? How has he been seeking mankind? Well, he seeks us. He's a personal God. We are individuals. We are personal individuals. We have a likeness to God, and a great deal of that likeness has to do with the fact that you have intellectual capacity to enter into relationship. You can understand God, and He can speak to you. And throughout the Word of God, what we call the Word of God, we have this indicating that God's way of dealing with us is to speak to us, is to speak. See, we, when Adam did sin, and if you go on in the story there in, in Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> we find out that very quickly the people who had been created in the image of God go way far away from him. I mean, it doesn't take, but remember it is Adam's sons that end up in a fight and one of them gets murdered. How long does it take for problems to develop when men start seeking for life outside of God? Uh, the, the situation develops to the point where in chapter 6, this is seven generations down the line, but in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, this is just before the flood, God has this to say about the human race. He's talking about the whole thing. He said, and he looked at man and he saw that the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man were only evil continuously. How about that? Every thought and the intention of man's heart was only evil continuously. He's talking about the whole race. It was, it was gone. Because they had, made, they had taken that step apart. But God's not finished. God's not finished. He's going to speak to them. Now, how is it that God speaks to us? That's what we want to think about tonight. And this, again, how do we have a foundation? But I want to, the first point that we're making here is that we have a foundation because it's God who is seeking us, not because we seek for God. If it was left to our seeking again, the whole human race had gotten to a place where nobody was seeking after God, and they were corrupted in their way. How does God speak? Well, I want to just cover these things that most of you are real familiar with, but it's important that we all get them all clear. The first way that God speaks to us is in the natural creation what we see around us. We call it general revelation. It is God revealing himself in the greatness of the world that's been created. Now, think about it for just a moment that there's a sun, a moon. They're they're really quite something. Even when I was a little kid, I thought, this is amazing that the sun and the moon look the same size. What's the chances? What are the chances that there could be an eclipse which is you know, with that ring around it, that the sun would be exactly blotted out by the moon. What is the chances of that? That's what I was a little kid. I'm thinking, this is something. 
You see, what I'm doing is observing the creation the way it was put into place. Now, I want to, to mention this on this level. That was the eternal God coming to me. See, he's speaking to me. He's telling me it's great and that there is a certain wonder to it. And I've thought about it, and again, if you are familiar with the combination of sun and moon activity make it possible for life to continue in this. The tides are so important. The up and down of the, of the oceans is so important to the productivity of life on this earth. It's incredible. If that moon doesn't stay in place and doesn't continue its rotation in the way it does and around the earth, if it doesn't do what it's, what it's doing on its rhythm, everything kind of starts to fall apart. If the sun, if the earth doesn't go around the sun the same way each time, things don't work. I, ca- I caught on to that when I was a little kid. That, I, know, I couldn't say I, I'd learned God, but I was saying this is amazing. It's very amazing. And he was speaking to me, and he's speaking to us. And it's an interesting feature. I was listening to a, uh, a tape by a, uh, how about that for an old-timey one? Um, I was watching a video of a uh, Christian astronomer who was speaking about the wonder of where the earth is placed in the, uh, in the galaxy. Right? We're in this, the Milky Way galaxy. But we're not in the middle of it. It's interesting. He didn't put us in the middle of it. And it was his conclusion again. He, if God had placed us there, we would have seen glory, but we wouldn't have seen all the glory. Because the volume of stars in the center of the galaxy is such that their brilliance would have blotted out our ability to see past them. And we would have thought that the grander, and it is pretty big, uh, the grander of that galaxy was the extent of what God had done and we would have missed a little because we are one galaxy among and this is again the numbers keep changing one galaxy among somewhere between 100 million galaxies and 1 billion galaxies galaxies not stars But see, we can see them because God put us way out on the edge of it so that every time we get a bigger telescope, we see more and more and more of what's out there. And what are we seeing? We are seeing the glory of God. Now, it is interesting that I was listening to a man just just recently who was talking about um, Carl Sagan, who was an atheist and didn't believe there was a God. He also was into science. Again, you know a little bit about him there. But the point was, when he, when he was getting to the end of his life, he looked at the universe and it completely depressed him that we are so insignificant in the midst of all this. Now, you should come to the conclusion you are insignificant in the midst of that, but it shouldn't depress you because it was all put there for your benefit, for my benefit. To call attention to the fact that the God who is outside of is really, really great. And yet, although he's on the outside, he is the God who is present with us on a daily basis. It's amazing. Is there any want with him? Now, there is a limit to natural creation or natural revelation. The problem with natural revelation is that it's wrecked. The fall of man caused the earth and its this, this 
realm that we're living in to be cursed. We don't know the extent of that curse. We, we can't figure out biblically how far it goes, what parts are, you know, where are the problems. So we can't say that this is the problem or that's the problem, but we run into all kinds of questions. We're asked all of the time questions like this. What kind of a God would create tornadoes or hurricanes or allow war or allow this? Why doesn't he do something? And those are legitimate questions from a perspective of someone that believes you have to get to God from here out. But that would be exactly the same as me taking you to the places where the day after the towers in New York had collapsed and saying, what kind of an engineer would create a building to crush people like these buildings have crushed people? Well, the engineer who built or designed those buildings, or the engineers, I'm sure there were more than one, did not have that in mind. Someone else had that in mind. The destruction doesn't tell us anything about the engineers. It tells us about something else. But when we look at creation, we run into a problem because we don't know what parts God put in there and are part of His perfect plan and what parts are cursed. And so God has to help us. If we're to ever know who the living God is, He's going to have to tell us. And that's why we have, right at the very beginning of the Word of God, He tells us about the creation from another perspective. This is what I did. This is the way I did it. So that's where Genesis chapter 1 becomes so important. I'm going to say something here, and again, I believe that Genesis chapter 1 record is true. I believe that. I believe it's scientifically accurate. However, it's not about science. The Bible is not about science. and I won't say this. It's not even about faith. That's not the point of the Word of God. Now, it includes faith. But if you look at all the passages on faith, you find out that it's not a very big part of the Word of God. I used to teach Old Testament survey. What is the purpose of the Old Testament? The very first time I taught this, I had a student come to me and said, what are we doing here? I came here to learn about Jesus Christ. I mean, he was, at least he was point blank, you know. Here I am, first time I'm doing it. It was a very encouraging day, you know. First day out. Why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it for a good reason. Why? Because in that revelation, God tells us who he is. Because we are so distant in our minds after watching this world and making speculations about what God might be like, we don't begin to understand it. And so he has to tell us. So right at the very beginning tells us. So again, he starts in there with the creation. And the very first thing you, I want to get real clear here. Again, I could go through all of it, but the God who we serve is outside of it. He created this. This is his, his created thing. It's not him. And he doesn't live inside of it. He lives outside of it, if you would. He is, he is beyond the measures of a universe. Now again, we're not going to try to measure him. Second thing I want you to note about him is that he did he created the whole thing with enormous power because he does it by by speaking and it's done. He, everything he wanted done got done because he said it should be done. Third thing I want to say about it, very important at the, at the foundation level, everything he did was right when he got to the first time. That's amazing. I have never done anything in my life right the first time. 
Everything I did had to be practiced. But with God, there is no practice. He is wise enough that when he says it, there it is. And finally, I want to say this about it. It was all good. And that good in the passage means it was beneficial. It wasn't just good like in, in sort of a, you know, an ice cream cone is good or something. This is, this is everything about it was healthy, beneficial to the good of mankind. Greatness of God, right? greatness of God now I'm going over that because why does he tell us all that because we have confused notions about who he is and he wants you to know who he is and so he tells you what it's like and when he says that he's speaking to you and he's speaking to me he's not just talking this out to the world Uh, One of the reasons, and I said this a few weeks ago, but one of the reasons I do what I do is because once this word was given to mankind, everybody is responsible for it. Because God has spoken. That's part of our theology, the part of the way we believe that he has spoken and you're responsible. What you do with it, I can't force you to do anything with it, but I can keep telling you it's there because the last thing I want people to do is ignore it. God is shouting, just like the creation. You can, it's, it's shouting, but people can ignore it. But what else do we find out? Because a question could come. This is where, where we get to this question, because I can remember being there. I can remember being at this place. Okay, great thought. Word of God says that. But how in the world do I know if that is actually God? I mean, you got a book here. And... I'll start off by saying this, that uh, there aren't very many books that claim to be the Word of God. It's not like we have to pick through a zillion different volumes to figure out. There are really only about a dozen different things on the earth that could be even close to being called claiming to be a word from God. Why should I believe it? That's a question I had to ask. That's one of the questions I was asking while I was in high school, and one of the conclusions I had not come to when I said, I'm going to get out of the whole thing for a while. I'm going to leave because I'm not sure about it. I really wasn't sure about it. How can I be? And I want to talk about that a little bit tonight. Now, this is a, this is a very, very brief apologetic course. Very, very brief, all right? I want to say that we're leaving a zillion things out that we could talk about, but not a zillion, but... Quite a few things that we could talk about, but I want to hit some things that the Word of God definitely tells us that you need to look at so that you will know that this is the Word of God. First thing I want you to note about this book is it is not the work of a person or the work of an era. That's very important. It's not the work of a person or an era. All right? The Koran was written by one man at a particular point in history. It reflects that, fe- that feature. But it was one man's presentation of the way things are. Right? This book is the product of men over a period of no less than 1,500 years, probably upwards to 2,000 years. Now, 1,500 years is a long time. Just think about that for a moment. Um, this is great because nobody ever knows the answer, but what happened 15 years ago, 1,500 years ago in world history, Western world history? Well, the Roman Empire was just collapsing. 
It, was just, it just had finally come to an end. And then those dark ages that we don't know a thing about, all right, don't even know the names, began. All right? 1,500 years. What did people think about? What was their thought process? What was the culture of Western Europe in 500 AD? Most of us don't have a clue. But I'll tell you one thing about it. It was a lot different than modern American life. What about, let's take it up a few years later. Let's take it up to 1,000. Right? Nobody knows what important things happened in 1,000, but I, again, because of the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church split. How about that? Wasn't that an important event for all of us? Right? What was going on then? Well, crusades were firing up. All right? It's crusader time. And everybody goes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who were the great men of the crusades? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know. We don't care. Why? Because it's a long time ago. What did people, what was the difference in outlook between people in 500 and 50 or 1,000? Move it up to 500 years ago. See, as you move through this, you are moving through vastly different cultures and societies. And the same thing is true in the Old Testament. It may not have moved quite as fast, but there is a huge difference between the days in which Moses led people out of Egypt and the time when Malachi finished up and the Persians were in control of the world. Cultures were different. Thinking was different. And yet throughout that, a word was given which is remarkably unified in its thinking. The principles are, are kind of all the same. That's, that's the first place it started. It, it's, it's not locked to a single person and is not locked to a single era. And yet there is harmony in it. And that's amazing. Try to write something today which is going to harmonize with somebody 500 years from now. Well, you don't even know where 500 years, ago is going to, or 500 years from now is going to be. Okay, next point I want you to note is the Word of God is not really mystical in the way it's presented. I want you to note that. God took a long time to, to present it. This, this used to be the biggest mystery I had. Why did God not just send the Lord a week after, the, after Adam died? Now, I don't know how profound, again, it's my, this, is a, this is a belief that the Word of God does not, again, this is my own personal belief about it. That the shock wave in the human heart was so deep that he wasn't ready. That it was going to take time to God for God to present himself. He had, they had lost so much touch with God. And they had so much lost desire for God that it was too early to move into it. Now again, I don't know. You see, when, when men sinned, they not only died in the sense that they didn't have a relationship with God anymore, but they didn't care. Now, I can relate to that. Maybe you can't. Was there a God? That question of is there a God really didn't have any more impact on my thinking than I wonder what it would be like to jump on the moon and go for 30 feet at one time. Just, I mean, to me, there was no real difference because I think, eh, it, I wonder if there is a God. Okay, on back to whatever it is that I'm doing pursuing 
Back to homework. Back to the rest. You see, I'd lost not only a knowledge of God, I'd lost a desire. Maybe it wasn't time. But when God began to work, what he does is he works with real people in real circumstances. And in those real circumstances, he shows us who he is. He doesn't do it so much by just saying, this is the way God is. It occurs at times. But most of the revelation of who God is, is made to us the same way we live. Human beings who had real problems, who God met them in those, and, and teaches them who he is. That's, that's really kind of him. But you see, every time he did that, there is something about what he's doing which relates to us. Now again, if you haven't read it, you wouldn't know that. I hadn't read it for a long time. I mean, when I, again, I want to say, I was, this, I was a sophomore, I think, in, at Furman University when I found out that certain stories, mysterious stories, weren't in Genesis. I just assumed everything that was mysterious was in Genesis, all right? I had all these funny stories. I thought, it has to be. That's how deep my spirituality went, you know, my Old Testament stir, survey studies. Now, there's, there's a word there, and, and God wants us to understand. He's going to cause us to understand it by talking to us about people who were like us, who didn't know, and how he interacted with them. There is a second feature, though, that I want to go over because it's uh, the Old Testament that is so important. And that has to do with the prediction of God's way of deliverance. As you begin to meet these people in the Old Testament, you find out they all have a common sin problem. It's one of the other things about the Word of God, which separates us from the ancient mythologies of the world. It doesn't worship. There, there aren't heroes in it that are perfect. There aren't heroes that are the, the Wonder Woman, the Superman, the what are the great... They're, they're regular people who make big mistakes, who do things just like we do, so that the great men are fallible men. And they all had problems. And because their circumstances were leading them into places where sin kept occurring, the question comes up about what about this problem? Because sin is what got... Adam in trouble in the first place with God. What's God going to do about all that? And as the message goes on, we find that there is a God with a plan. If you were here when our study of Isaiah, we, we went over a lot of this. That this is very important. To, that God wants us to know that He's not responding. He is initiating. That He had a plan from the beginning, which He He is now in the process of carrying out. So that. He can talk to individuals over a very long period of time and tell them the same thing. So that when Adam had sinned and the cursing comes on the serpent, which is in the bottom part of that, the end part of the chapter 3 where, where Eve sins, <clears throat> God begins to promise that it's, you're gonna, the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. It's going to be crushed. It's only a hint at that particular time. I'm going to win this fight. <laughs> and it's going to come through the seed of the woman. It's not just going to come by God coming down and, and declaring the devil defeated. It's going to come through the seed of a woman. The Bible story really fires up with the story of Abraham. There's the early history of the world is covered in 
just a few chapters. But in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God begins his program, begins to do it in earnest, and he does it with the man Abraham. Now, we're not going to talk about all of Abraham's life, but I want to, to note one thing about it. Late in Abraham's life, God says, I want to take you to a place. You're going to make a sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice your son, but you're going to sacrifice him where I tell you to go. And he takes him to a place which is called Moriah. It's a hillside which is near the city of Jerusalem. And he took him up on that hillside. And one of the things that happens there is it's in the mount of the Lord. This mountain, right here, it will be provided. He took him to a spot. Now again, he didn't leave a marker there. But there's every indication in the word of God that that spot is the place where a cross would be placed later on. Because God knows where he's going. And he knows what this will cost. He begins to talk about this person. 500 years later, 500 years, okay, uh, Moses comes along, receives the law. And in the receiving of law, he is given instruction. And one of the great instructions that he is given along the way is this, that there's going to be a constant stream of sacrifice because a principle of the book of Leviticus is this, that fellowship with God is on the basis of sacrifice. Because of sin, fellowship with God is always on the basis of a sacrifice. And as Moses began to study that and understand it, and he saw the glory of God, he also began to understand that God would have to supply another person, a person who could take care of this problem. He asked one day what the, to God to show him his glory. And when God finally did, he said, I'm going to show you my goodness. And here's what he said to him. The Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. His mercies are over all his works. But then at the end, he says this, but he will in no wise clear the guilty. That's sort of a problem for all of us. It's great to know he's loving kind, but he won't clear the guilty. But today, people can be cleared. Why can they be cleared? Because there was the promise of one coming in again. Moses also made prophecy. Move up a thousand or 500 more years. It's 1,000 B.C. There's a man named David. David was a king. It's a completely different circumstance than when Moses was there and he's in this land. And Mo, or David walked with God in an unusual way, particularly in his early years. He walks in an unusual way. Somewhere along the line, he gives a prophecy. In, this is in Psalm 22. You can go read it. In which he describes the events of the cross. He describes the events of the pain that the Lord would go through. He gives the exact vocabulary that will be used there. He tells us that the men who are watching this will divide his garments by lots. This is a thousand years before the event, and it's at least 500 years before crucifixion was even used as a method, and yet he describes it all the way. Now, the reason we want to think about that is that is God speaking to me that is God speaking to you why should I listen we're going to go on to the book of Isaiah and if you were here at the time we talked about Isaiah in those last chapters which we call that messianic poem it goes from chapter 40 to 66 God makes this statement he says you 
people are concerned about your idols. Bring them out. Bring out your God. (laughs) And let them tell us what's going to happen. And if they can tell you, then follow them. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And if it comes to pass, you know to follow me. Well, one of the things that Isaiah would bring out, he did. there was a lot of other prophecies he made which should have alerted the people at that day that God was working through Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 53, he also describes what God would do at the cross. Why did he do that? He did that for you this evening. He loved you. He had you in mind when I, how about that? The thought that God would have me in mind when he spoke to Isaiah and told him to write down that chapter. When he spoke to David, and I don't know how David got it. I don't know how David came up with that information, but he comes up with it. Why is that being said? Because way down the line, he has me in mind. And he knew I wouldn't wonder, I wonder whether or not to listen to this. All right? And in love for me, he loved me, he gave himself for me. He loves you. He's ready to give himself for you. He has given himself for you. So we can go on there. We're just surveying, right? We're just surveying. There's a lot more in the Old Testament. It goes all the way down to the very last prophet, 400 years before it takes place, says that the Lord's coming. He's coming. And before he comes, he's going to send Elijah in front in that. John the Baptist would come. He said, that's the Elijah that came. Everything, it's all pictured out there. It's pictured that way so that you can know that this is the word of God. But there's more to it. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, this is the New Testament now, in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer starts off by saying this, the God who spoke in the Old Testament, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's the Old Testament saints, in the prophets, in many portions, many ways, in these last days, and he's talking about what's, this is his final statement, he spoke in his son. Now, his son is Jesus Christ. He says, now, God has sent a person, that person that he promised, and we could go through a whole lot more promises, a person which was known in the Old Testament as the Messiah, who is going to be the great prophet, Moses says that, he's going to be the prophet. I'm going to raise up, says God, a prophet like you. And everything will depend on what people do with that prophet. If they listen or don't listen, their blessing or failure to, believe, or blessing, to have blessing would depend on that. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, he was the fulfillment of all that. Right? All those things are speaking about him. And he's come. And it's so clearly prophesied that, again, we're coming up to Christmas season. We all know that. That when asked where they should look for the Messiah to be born, they knew. The scholars knew. You're going to look in Bethlehem. That's where it says. And lo and behold, that's where he would be. He would be there because God had a plan that he was working out. And the fact that he was in Bethlehem and the fact that that was put down in the Bible was for your sake and for my sake. So we would know it's the word of God and not just something that came, somebody came up with and put together out of their, their concern for mankind. But now God has spoken in his son. He tells us, first of all, that if we just watch that life, if you just watch that life, you will know who God is and what he's like. He who has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father. 
But there's a second feature to what he does. That great problem of sacrifice, he's going to deal with it. The basis of fellowship with God is always and only a sacrifice. We're going to be thinking about that for the next couple weeks. There's only one way to God. And it has nothing to do with who I am in and of myself. It has nothing to do with my goodness because I don't have any. There's none that's righteous, not one. There's nobody that even seeks for him. And yet he comes and seeks for us. Paul says that he loved me and he gave himself for me. And so that whole message of, the, of Jesus leads to a moment where he goes to that place that Abraham had visited 2,000 years before and fulfills the prophecy that David had understood a 1,000 years before. Did what Isaiah said he would do 800 years or 700 years before. He fulfills it all, and he dies on a cross. Now, if that were the end of the message, I would tell you, you still have a problem because everybody that has ever been born on this earth up to this point who's been over 100 and some years old has died. They're all dead. And there's no sign that anybody in this group is escaping that. There's no reason for any of us to believe that that system is ever going to be broken apart from, from just looking around. But the same one who died on a cross rose from the dead. This is, this, is prob- this is the center point of the entirety of Christianity. You've got to get on. We get used to the vocabulary of it. We're in church. Yes, it, it's Easter. He's risen. A man rose from the dead. The one who said, I will rise from the dead. He predicted it told his disciples it would come to pass they didn't catch on when he died they didn't it was so remote from their thinking that they never considered it and yet it happened it happened that is the center of christianity when peter who had denied the lord got up on the day of pentecost what does he say what does he have to say well, it is the message that Jesus died, yes, but it's the message of the resurrection. And he, makes, he comes to an important conclusion. Now, this is in, in um, Acts chapter 2. He comes to an important conclusion. He says, the one who you crucified, God raised him from the dead. And he says this, now let all Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, that's not that God had just done that. Those were words that every person who was Jewish knew because those are words that were used all the way down the line in the Old Testament. The anointed one. God has made him both the Lord and Christ, this one whom you've crucified. That's why you should believe. Now, could they have made that story up? Yes, they could have. There is absolutely no doubt about that. They could have made, people can get together and make up stories, right? It's been done several times in history when people tell it the way it is. Um, it is important to note, as you're thinking about that, that of the 11 men who were his disciples, 
who saw that resurrection, 10 of them died martyrs' deaths, as far as we know. As far as we know. None of them ever changed their mind. The only one who didn't die a martyr's death was the Apostle John. He died a natural death. He got to a very old age. But he also suffered on Patmos, which was a prison camp for, it was the living death. He managed to survive it. So he didn't die that way. And not one of them turned their back on the story. You show me 11 men who will make up a story and all die painful deaths in, in order to keep it up. It's not there. Now, this is, this is God speaking. This is God speaking to us, what? Through the resurrection from the dead. That's why Paul, when he starts his great message to the Romans, begins by saying he was the son of God, according, or, son of man, or the son of David, according to the flesh, but was declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection from the dead. So that when I walk away from the word of God, and this is one of the things I had to, if I'm going to walk away from it, I am going to have to walk away from that. That's what I have to do. Now, human beings are doing it right and left. I'm not saying this is, say, well, what if I don't believe? Well, if you don't, then you're going to skip the mess of life because this is where it is. But he did that for you and he did that for me so that I would know. I asked him at one point, you know, how can I know for sure? There are a whole lot of other apologetic arguments that can be given but the two that made sense to me because they both came out of the book itself and not some theological argument out here were number one that God had said what he was going to do and lo and behold he did it and there was no way I could explain how those things could be in that book and be fulfilled out here to the precision that they were second thing was this if I'm going to reject this I'm going to have to say those men died needlessly he didn't rise from the dead if he came out of the grave i've been to enough funerals i've never seen it but he was there he's alive you see god is speaking but he's not just speaking to the human race he's speaking to us because i live and move and have my being in him now finally it comes down to this one god is working all over the earth there's tremendous stories of the things that god is doing Moving in Asia in amazing ways. In the Middle East, there are great things happening in in parts of Africa. The Spirit of God moving. But here's what's important for us tonight. The Spirit of God is in Greenville, South Carolina. The Spirit of God is at 700 North Parker Road. The Spirit of God is in this auditorium. And the same one who put the stars up there to speak to you and to tell you he's great. And who gave the word of God so you could know exactly how great he is. And how he acts. And what he thinks. And what he will do. Is here by his spirit tonight. And he's seeking you. He's seeking after us. You see we love. We're going to talk about what our response has to be next week. But we love because he first loved us. We seek for him because he first sought us. We never initiate anything in this salvation. He comes and gets us. You know, I will never, ever. I came 500 miles away from home, 550. I don't know how far it was from Orlando, Florida to Greenville, South Carolina to escape God. And he came and he got me and I've never forgotten that. 
that while I was running away, I met Mr. Johnson and I met a whole lot of other people and God himself through individuals, but it was God himself hemmed me in and called me to himself. He came and got me because he loved me and gave himself for me. And I am not unique. It's not something that he does for one person over here and he puts them up. No, he does that for... I, can, I could make the parade. I could call on the people to come up here and tell you that same thing. Where are you tonight? You see, the question is, he's speaking. He's already spoken. This is, this is what he said. What are you doing with it? Have you heard it? Have you accepted it? Are you, are you ready to listen to it? If you are, he's ready to speak. He knows the strains you're under, but he's done all that so that you, tonight, can know that he is here and he's ready to talk to you. What have you done with the word of God? What have you done with the Lord who's revealed in the word of God? Are you ready to seek after him? Okay, let's pray. Father, we're coming before you. We give you thanks for your written word. We thank you for the living word that it describes. We thank you for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the coming of the Spirit of God. And we're thanking you for what you do to make dead men live. We come and ask you, Father, wherever it's necessary tonight, speak to hearts. Wake us. Father, just as you woke my own heart from my selfish, ungodly living and brought me to yourself, Father, do it again and again. Have mercy upon us. We trust you for it. We pray in Jesus' name.